Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us on this podcast we like to call Space Nuts, although we're not sure there are any nuts in space, but there are plenty on Earth. Uh, I'm one of them, and Fred is not. Fred Watson I'm talking about from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hello, Fred. Why, why can you be a nut, but I can't be? I was trying to be uh, polite, but if you want to be a nut, that's fine. That's fine with me. I mean, as the, as the, as the blurb says, may contain, may may contain, contain traces, traces of Fred Watson and Andrew Duffy. Duffy. Yeah, good Fred point. Watson. That's yeah. on our logo. Yeah, I should have remembered that. Oh, well. Now, today, Fred, um, black hole clusters may exist uh, in their thousands, it sounds like. This is uh, an unusual um, prediction and maybe a discovery. Uh, Virgin Galactic uh, has just uh, done a test flight of VSS Unity, and it's the first time they've been up there for, um, gosh, nearly four years after a tragic accident in 2014. And a question from our studio audience, what do we actually see from Earth? Is everything we see in our galaxy or is there other stuff out there? And uh, it's a good question because um, I, I think most of what we see is in our galaxy, but a lot more is not. That doesn't make sense. Anyway, we'll get to that. Uh, but first, Fred, let's talk about uh, this this uh, situation with black holes. We've talked about black holes before and how they only ever came in two sizes, and this story does allude to that. But now they're starting to think there's a little bit more going on here. Exactly so. And you're quite right. They, they do seem to come in two sizes, uh, the very big ones and quite small ones. So uh, just to recap, um, we now think that most galaxies, like our Milky Way, uh, hundreds of billions of stars and gas and dust and all the rest of it, uh, we think that most of them at their centre have a black hole. Uh, and these are big black holes, and they're presumably big because they've grown over the lifetime of the galaxy, although, once again, the, the jury's still out on, on the origins of all that. But, um, so the, for example, we know uh, that there is a black hole at the centre of our own galaxy with a mass of 3.6 million times the mass of the Sun. So it's a big one. It's what's called a supermassive black hole. Actually, some of them are, are billions of times the mass of the Sun, so it's a fairly modest supermassive black hole. But the other category is ones that come in maybe 20 or 30 times the mass of the sun. So these are what are called stellar mass black holes because they are the mass of a star, roughly, uh, or a big star anyway. And the other ones are the supermassive ones. And there doesn't seem to be really anything in between. There have been a few discoveries made of things with maybe 200 times the mass of the sun, but they, they don't seem to be there in great numbers. The small ones are and the big ones are, but the ones in between are not terribly, uh, uh, you know, they're not populous. They're not common. So they, hmm. They're not common, that's the, the word, yes, or not commonplace, how's that? That's better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, the, um, the, the story that we're talking about today, though, is about the fact that uh, there is a prediction 
that uh, if you've got a big supermassive black hole at the center of a galaxy, it should be accompanied by swarms of much smaller ones. In other words, the stellar mass black hole should kind of cluster around the big supermassive one. Uh, the, and the, there are a number of mechanisms that are suggested for this. The, 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 the theory seems clear that there will be these things, but how they're, exactly how they're formed, there are a couple of possible different ways. We, we don't really need to go into that for this story because this story is about the fact that we've now confirmed that that is the case. Oh, uh, so it is, it, is it actually confirmed? Yes, that's right. So there is a nice detective story here. These are scientists from uh, Columbia University in the USA, and what they've what they've actually done is they've looked for what are called black hole binaries. And this is where you've got a black hole and something else, which is usually a star. Uh, it, they're in orbit around one another. A binary is when two objects are orbiting around one another. So you can have binary planets and binary stars. Actually, binary asteroids, there are quite a lot of those as well hmm. out there in our own solar system. Um, so they've looked for that because um, if you've got a black hole with another star near to it, what tends to happen is that the black hole sucks material off its companion star, and that forms what's called an accretion disk, a disk of swirling material around the black hole. Um, and occasionally uh, you get a big chunk going into the accretion disk and it flares up in the X-rays, uh, in the X-ray region of the spectrum. We don't see these things in visible light. We see them actually by um, what, what you might call invisible astronomy, uh, and that's things like X-ray telescopes. So um, the scientists at Columbia University, what they've been doing is looking for uh, an X-ray flash when some chunk of material gets sucked off a companion star and into one of these um, predicted black holes. But they haven't seen anything. And that's because such events are probably relatively rare. Mm. Um, even though the belief is that our supermassive black hole may be accompanied by up to 10,000 smaller black holes. It's not a small number of objects around it. That's a staggering number, really. It is, that's right. It's a very large number. Um, and so, you, you, you know, you might say, well, at least one of those things should flash off occasionally and we should be watching for it. And they've been watching, but they haven't seen anything. So they changed their strategy, uh, which is what you tend to do when, you, when you're going down a blind alley. And instead, they looked for the, the sort of um, steady signal that would come from the accretion disk itself. So you've got the, this disk of material that's swirling around the black hole. All the stuff is is intermixed. Everything's crashing into each other in that disk, and that itself uh, releases X-rays. So you don't have to wait for a big, you know, big chunk of star to fall into your black hole and look for the X-ray signal from that. You've got a kind of background of X-rays, and the critical thing is that they are different. The X-rays that you get have a different energy from the X-rays that you would get if you found uh, some big chunk falling into the accretion disk. Uh, now, when we talk about energies in X-rays, Andrew, it's it's akin to talking about colour in light. Mm. So high-energy X-rays are like blue or violet light, which is high-energy light. Low-energy light is red. It's at the red end of the spectrum. It's We usually think of it in terms of wavelength when it comes to, to light beams. But in the X-ray scientists always talk about energies. Um, uh, that's because they use similar techniques uh, to the particle physicists who who measure solid lumps of things, which which uh, you know you talk about their energies. Um, <laughs> there is a 
<laughs> there is a curious thing there because in quantum theory you can talk about the wavelength of a solid chunk as well but we won't go there that's just oh, too, too too complicated that would so, be a headache yeah yeah it gives me one too um <laughs> All right, so, so what they've done is they've said, well, let's look for X-rays at a lower energy than the ones we were looking for before. In other words, the, the, you know, the, the sort of um, uh, analog of red light rather than blue light. Yeah. Um, and, and in the hope that they will see this constant source of X-rays coming from the accretion disk, the disk of material swirling around the black hole. And sure enough, They've, that's paid off because mm. they've teased out this signal from the galactic center uh, of objects very close to the supermassive black hole at the middle of our galaxy. In fact, within, I think it's something like three light years of the, uh, <clears throat> of the, of the supermassive black hole, which, remember, is 25,000 light years away from us yeah. uh, here on Earth. It's a long way off. Um, so they found uh, a dozen of these signals from uh, X-ray signals from the disk of material around the black holes and have written this up uh, in a paper which suggests that we what we're seeing is the kind of tip of the iceberg of these huge numbers of black holes that are thought to be swirling around the black hole at the middle of the galaxy, around the supermassive black hole. So it seems like a very successful story. And what is probably going to happen is people will continue looking and will find more and more of these things because that's the way the way it works in astronomy. They may even find hundreds of them that um, you know that will tell us more about. Uh, the environment within the uh, inner three or four light years of our own galaxy. And brings up questions about the relationship between supermassive black holes and small black holes and, and why would there be, you know, upwards of 10,000 of them all clustered together like that? It's, uh, it's yeah, it, it's a whole new area that uh, needs to be investigated by the sound of it. Th that's right. They, so that the, the two theories for why you should get these things around the supermassive black hole is one is fairly intuitive. It's um, the fact that there is a, you know, there is a strong gravitational pull from the big black hole. And so the smaller black holes, which are themselves, um, you know, they've got plenty of gravity because these are probably 20 or 30 times the mass of the sun. Mm. Um, they get pulled down, you know, in much the same way as things sink to the bottom of uh, um, well, a, a, you know, a, a pile of, well, let's, let's think of the fluid. If you put a uh, heavier liquid in, inside um, a lighter liquid, then the heavier liquid will sink to the bottom because yeah. the gravity of the Earth pulls it that way. So it's that kind of thing. It's um, these things just, just uh, trapped in the vicinity of the black hole at the center of the galaxy. Um, and some, there, there is an alternative uh, possibility, and that is that we know that the center of our galaxy is uh, rich in very massive stars uh, because that's where all the gas and dust is that uh, surrounds the the supermassive black hole so there are there are massive stars which form from that stuff and then they themselves at the end of their lives would form stellar mass black holes so you've, you've got two possible theories one is that um, that the raw material for for black holes is already there around the center of our galaxy uh, so that's why you get lots of them and the other is that um, the ones that are lurking around a bit further out get pulled in anyway by the gravitation so either way you're going to find more of these stellar mass black holes in the vicinity of the supermassive one wow. um, and that seems to have been borne out by the observations and again, uh, the possibility of this being a common thing amongst other galaxies, uh, I suppose, will be a matter of time when we see it elsewhere. That's correct. Yeah. It, I mean, it's um, 
the, the difficulty is uh, actually in, in other galaxies because the distance is, you know, the nearest big galaxy to our own is two and a half million light years away. Yeah. So the distances get large, but still um, the X-ray telescopes that we have are very sensitive. Maybe, um, maybe that will come along eventually. Of course, uh, we could just wait until we <laughs> merge with Andromeda. Well, yeah, um, that's absolutely right. We're, Andromeda is going to get a lot nearer to us than it is now. In I think it's about three and a half billion years, Andrew. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we're yeah. patient. <laughs> we can wait that long. <laughs> but I, I, I don't doubt there'll be more on this topic as uh, as things unfold. But what an incredible discovery! Yeah, I think it is. I think it's remarkable. It's mm. uh, you know something that um, uh, we probe the middle regions of our galaxy now in ways that 20 years ago we simply would not have dreamed of. Yeah. Uh, so for those of you who are worried that uh, Earth might one day be gobbled up by a big black hole, that's nah, all right. There are only 10,000 of them now. <laughs> <laughs> All is good. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash Space. That's T R Y E X P R E S S V P N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more, and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now, back to the show. Space nuts. Now, Fred, we're going to uh, talk about something we've, we've talked about many times uh, before, maybe once or twice uh, in this podcast, but certainly in our former lives as um, uh, on radio. Uh, we talked about Virgin Galactic and their plans for space tourism, and all was going well until 2014 when there was a, a very tragic accident involving uh, the spacecraft and it's been four years now and they've finally got back in the um, in the air uh, with the VSS Unity so um, that, that happened last week as I imagine. 
I believe that's right. I think it was last last Thursday. Um, so VSS Unity, that's right, is VSS, of course, Virgin Spaceship, yeah. uh, is um, is the replacement for the uh, the rocket plane that was tragically lost back in 2014. Um, so that really clearly put a, a, a big uh, interruption in Virgin's plans for launching their commercial uh, space tourism venture, which is what Virgin Galactic is all about. Uh, it was an accident that happened actually because of human error. The, uh, the interesting thing about the Virgin spacecraft is that uh, its wings kind of fold up when it's re-entering the atmosphere. It, it's the process they call feathering. Mm. And the, the, the back half of this delta wing shape actually folds up almost vertically, it's almost in a right angle, to act as a brake to slow the craft down as it re-enters the atmosphere after its, uh, after its um, suborbital flight. Uh, and once it gets down to a reasonable speed, they, they sort of reconfigure it, so it's still, you know, it, it comes back to a normal shape. But what happened in the accident is that um, the feathering mechanism was unlatched uh, when the, the craft was traveling too fast. In fact, I think it was good, still going upwards when they released the feathering mechanism. And it basically just, um, it broke up uh, because because it couldn't stand the stresses. One, one of the two pilots was killed in that uh, tragic accident. Um, that possibility apparently has now been eliminated. Um, there is no chance of accidentally un unlatching the, the feathering. So let me just recap the way Virgin Galactic works because it's, um, it's not like you, 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 know, you climb into a rocket ship and uh, it, it lifts off and up you go and then come back down again. It is similar to that, but it's a bit more complicated. Mm. So uh, there is a, a, what's called a mothership, which is really a very unusual aeroplane. It's uh, a jet, four engine jet, but it's got two bodies or fuselages and the, uh, the, the rocket plane, which makes the suborbital flight, sits in between the two fuselages. There's a kind of bridge across between them, which supports the rocket plane itself. So this whole entourage takes off uh, using the jets uh, and flies to a height of something like 16, 15 or 16 kilometers. And then the rocket plane itself, with its six fair paying passengers on board, is released. Uh, and uh, a motor, a rocket motor on the rocket plane fires and propels the thing upwards. Uh, I think it cuts out uh, after about, in normal flight, I think it'll burn for about 30 or 40 seconds uh, before it uh, cuts out. And then the rocket plane coasts up to a height of 100 kilometers. Wow. And during that coast, coasting phase, that is when you're weightless, it then starts coming down again, and they do this feathering mechanism to, to slow it down. Uh, and then the whole thing, or the, the rocket plane itself, lands like a glider in just the same way as the space shuttle did mm. uh, in, the, uh, in the space shuttle era. So that's the process. Uh, you get something like three minutes of weightlessness. You, uh, you can see from 100 kilometers, clearly see the curvature of the Earth. You can see the thinness of the Earth's atmosphere. I think it's going to be a wonderful experience for those uh, people who have paid their deposit and those who will follow on afterwards. But the, the problem is this has taken a huge amount of development uh, on the part of Virgin Galactic. And the reason for that is that you don't want an accident. I mean, no. they have had an accident. But imagine if that had involved, you know, passengers, uh, fair-paying passengers. It would have basically 
killed the fledgling space tourism industry probably for decades. Mm. So um, Virgin Galactic is playing it very safe and that's why it's taken so long. They've been, um, you know, for about the last, I suppose, probably the last seven or eight years, they've been saying, well, within the next year, we'll have paying passengers. They're, they're way behind schedule now. Always a year away. And all those um, people that are standing at the exit gate are probably getting a little impatient. <laughs> waiting for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, we've... Um, uh, You've we've been there. The, Exit gate. Yes, the um, the uh, it's called Spaceport America. It's at a place called, believe it or not, Truth or Consequences, <laughs> which is in New Mexico. Why is it called Truth or Consequences? Well, it was it had another name, this town, and then changed its name to compete in a quiz show on American television. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I know nothing more about that, but Truth or Consequences is the name of the town, and about um, I said I think it's about twenty kilometres from that is Spaceport America. It's in New Mexico. Uh, and yeah, there is this monumental runway, three kilometers long. It's about 75 meters wide with a wonderful, uh, basically, you know, the space flight terminal. Uh, it's a very elegant building. There is a, um, a, the, the Spaceport America itself has its own uh, administration building, which we've been in and had a look at. Uh, it's all completely empty because there's really nothing going on there. And I think the government of New Mexico invested about, if I remember rightly, it was 212 million US dollars in building this thing. And so they're kind of waiting rather anxiously for the revenue to start flowing from... Yeah. Uh, you know, from launch fees and things of that sort, which Virgin Galactic will pay once they get going. Um, so this is a step uh, forward. Uh, what's happened now is that uh, what is sometimes called Spaceship Two, but is actually now called Unity, uh, that has had a, a, the, the first test flight in its final series of trials. Um, and it seems to have been very successful. They, uh, the, the mothership uh, took the uh, the, the, the space plane up to actually about 14 kilometers, released it. Uh, they did a 30 second burn, um, which is actually uh, what I said before was 30, 40 seconds. I think the final thing will be much longer than that to propel the spacecraft uh, up, up to 100 kilometers. But with a 30 second burn, they got up to 25 kilometers, and that's a quarter of the way. So Gee, it's significant. That, that's stuff. pretty darn fast, isn't it? Yeah. It is, yeah. They were travelling at uh, 1.87 times the speed of sound, Mach 1.87. Still, that's that's about the speed of the Concorde, isn't it? Yeah, something like that. That's mm. right. Yeah, yeah. But nevertheless, uh, very, very significant. I think as a step forward. I think they are really uh, very anxious to progress this whole project. I'm sure uh, Richard Branson is. Uh, this was a safe and totally. Um, you know, as as predicted flight, uh, they landed successfully. And of course, what they'll now be looking at is all the data that came back from the telemetry and everything else, just to make sure everything is going well. But I'm sure we'll hear more within the near future, Andrew, of, uh, of Virgin Galactic. Yeah, I'm really pleased that they're back on track because uh, I know there's been a lot of heart and soul poured into this and Richard Branson yes. never does things by halves. And uh, I, I think he's just one of these, uh, like Elon Musk, one of these remarkable people who puts his money where his mouth is and uh, he's going to achieve great things and he will help 
um, space development in other ways going forward, not just in terms of tourism, but uh, the things that they're achieving are, are going to be um, felt for years, years and years to come, I imagine. One thing I'm really interested in, and I know I'll never see this because I can't afford the, the ticket, it's 10 or 15 bucks to get on this thing. You know when you get on a um, commercial airliner and they do the safety message? Yes. I, I am busting to see the safety message on Virgin Galactic. <laughs> I reckon that would be a, a real hoot. Yeah, I think it's just hang on and hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> it probably is. It probably is. And I, I always kind of laugh when they say, and if any, anything happens, there'll be lights illuminating on the floor for you to follow to get out. Yes, no one's right. ever proved if that works. Mm, that's right. Mm. Anyway, uh, um, well, we watch with we'll interest. See. Yes, uh, you, you never know. You might get your your right. Uh, maybe um, Richard will tap you on the shoulder someday and say, "Well, you've been spruiking us for all these years, Andrew Dunkley. It's time you had your free flight." Yeah, I, I reckon I've given him ten or fifteen bucks worth of publicity. Yeah. That's <laughs> absolutely right. uh, Australian dollars too, which makes it even less valuable. Uh, we'll hear more on this. We'll keep an eye on Virgin Galactic. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and, of course, Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and with a go. Space Nuts. All right, finally, Fred, we are going to try and crack open a question from our audience. This one comes from Mark uh, Snelson. Thank you for uh, emailing us, Mark. We're uh, always happy to receive uh, emails and letters and, and questions from uh, people, especially ones we can answer. Uh, he says, I'm a UK listener, only discovered your brilliant underlined and exclamation marks now i'm making that up brilliant <laughs> podcast recently but i'm working my way through the back catalog uh, question for fred is it generally the case that the things we observe from earth are in our galaxy now he says i know as you reported and in fact uh, was prompted uh, is what prompted the question that hubble has seen a star two-thirds of the way across the universe. Yeah, we talked about that recently. So clearly not everything being studied is in our galaxy, but when things like exoplanets, quasars, etc., etc., are spoken of, roughly what percentage of that stuff is in our galaxy? Ooh, interesting question. Uh, it's a great question, Andrew, and um, it's worth spending a bit of time on because I think Mark um, highlights... A point that I've always felt is a weakness in, uh, you know, in, in the way that we astronomers talk about what we do in a general context, because what we tend to do is launch into discussions of particular kinds of objects like quasars or like uh, black holes or gravitational lenses or whatever. We talk about these things, but often fail to put them into context. In other words, where do they sit in the grand scheme of things? Um, and Mark's question is exactly that. So, you know, what's in our galaxy and what's out of our galaxy? So the, uh, well, the question itself, which uh, Mark postulates at the beginning, uh, is it generally the case that the things we observe from Earth are in our galaxy? The answer is no. Okay, uh, and we could have stopped there. We could have, Mark, we could have stopped there and, you know, gone and had a cup of tea. Mark, but, I'll tell you, Andrew wanted to stop there. That was. <laughs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> but wait, there's more. You get a set of steak knives with this as well. <laughs> so the, the, the bottom line is, um, I, I guess the, the, perhaps the way to address this is in a, in a historical context, because until the 1920s, we didn't know um, what galaxies were. We, we knew that there were 
that there were spiral, what were called spiral nebulae, which were strange wispy things that seemed to have spiral shape to them, a bit like a pinwheel uh, in the uh, in space. But it, it was only in 1923 that uh, Edwin Hubble discovered that these are actually big objects a very, very long way away. Mm. Uh, in other words, they're external galaxies. They called them island universes at the time. Oh, did they? Yeah, which is a nice it name, is. an island universe. It's sort of because until then the universe was basically everything we could see in our in our own galaxy. Uh, and the idea of the galaxy itself uh, came from work done by Herschel back in the in the at the turn of the uh, um, 18th sorry the 19th turn of the 19th century. Mm. So um, anyway, going back uh, to the question. Um, we now observe very, very many things beyond our own galaxy. Uh, the, the stuff that we can see with the naked eye, let's take that simplest case, you stand outside under a starry sky, pretty well everything you can see there is in our own galaxy. In other words, it's within the Milky Way spiral galaxy, 400 billion stars, lots of gas, dust and, and dark matter. Um, that, uh, with the naked eye, pretty well all we can see is in our galaxy. The exceptions are, if you're in the southern hemisphere, uh, sadly you're not, Mark, but we are, we see what are called the Magellanic Clouds. There are two nearest neighbour galaxies of any size. They're relatively small galaxies, we call them dwarf galaxies. Their numbers of stars are measured in hundreds of millions or billions rather than hundreds of billions, like our own is. <clears throat> the large Magellanic Cloud, the small Magellanic Cloud, the large one <clears throat> is about 175,000 light years away. I think the small one's about 200,000 light years away. They're called large and small partly because that's the way they look in the sky. Uh, the small one is further away, so it looks smaller, but it also is smaller as well. It's not as big a galaxy as the as the large one. And the other thing um, that uh, you can see actually in the northern hemisphere with the naked eye is the Andromeda galaxy itself, the one we were just talking about the a few one minutes ago. The one we're going to smash into. The one we're going to smash into in three and a half billion years. Um, that is a fuzzy patch. Uh, you need a dark sky to see it. It's a lot easier if you start with binoculars because you can pick out this fuzzy patch fairly easily with binoculars and then strain your eyes. Um, it's fairly low on our northern horizon um, seen uh, from here uh, in Australia, uh, but, uh, but uh, up in the northern hemisphere, it passes almost overhead. Uh, that's the Andromeda galaxy, two and a half million light years away. Really, it's the furthest thing that you can see with the unaided eye. A few people can see another one uh, called M33, uh, but uh, that's fainter and is much harder to find. And I've never seen it with the naked eye, although I have seen it. I think the you've got to be under five years old. Yeah, they're probably right. Yeah, you've got <laughs> absolutely perfect vision. Mm. So th those are the only things we can see that are outside our galaxy with the naked eye. But as soon as you've got telescopes and even small, you know, amateur telescopes or actually even binoculars, that opens up what we call the extra galactic universe, the universe beyond our galaxy. So um, just to go into the details that uh, that Mark mentions, exoplanets, Yes, it's true that uh, pretty well all the exoplanets that we've discovered, these are planets orbiting other stars, are within our own galaxy because you need fairly sensitive measurements to detect exoplanets. Usually it's by the way the light of the star dips as the planet passes in front of it. And the planet's a tiny fraction of the size of the star, so the dipping of the light is not much, but it's still detectable. So um, we have, we have um, as I recall, detected 
you know, maybe one or two exoplanets in other galaxies, other nearby galaxies, but most of them, the 3,000 or so that we know, uh, by far the vast majority of those are within our own galaxy. So they are definitely uh, within, within the Milky Way galaxy. Quasars are not. Quasars are um, actually they're delinquent galaxies of themselves. They're a phase that galaxies seems to go, seem to go through relatively early in their lives in which the supermassive black hole at the middle starts emitting copious amounts of energy because it's it's basically gobbling up a lot of material. Um, we think in today's universe, quasars are extinct, but because in the universe we're always looking, as we look out into space, we're always looking back in time, we can see them uh, as they were millions and sometimes billions of years ago. So quasars, very bright objects. Um, that, that's, the the, comes that's the thing that really blows my mind. We are seeing things that no longer exist. <laughs> Oh, that's right. Well, that's right. Yeah, it's crazy town. It it it's it's just one of the weirdnesses associated with the universe. Yeah. Um. They they they. What's what's happened to these quasars? They, um. You know, they exist in in the sense that their their host galaxies are still there, but their host galaxies have now settled down into comfortable middle age, rather than this delinquent energetic phase that they seem to go through early in their lives. It's almost certain that our galaxy went through a quasar phase, you know, a few a few billion years ago. Good thing we weren't around because the amount of energy that you get from them is is extremely devastating. It's a very large amount of energy. Mm. So quasars um, are definitely extragalactic. Um, most supernovae that we see, well, actually all of them, uh, supernovae are exploding stars. Um, the the last one in our own galaxy was, I think, the supernova of 1576. Uh, Fred took I a photo of it. Correct, yeah. <laughs> Which is Tycho uh, Brahe's supernova. Um, there was one in 1604, that probably was in our galaxy as well, that's Kepler's supernova. The most recent supernova visible with the naked eye was actually in the Large Magellanic Cloud, the supernova 1987A. Um, which is, uh, as, as I said, one of our nearest neighbours in extragalactic space. But by far the majority of the supernovae that are discovered are seen in other galaxies. And in fact, this is one of the key ways of calibrating the dimensions of the universe, because these supernovae tend to act as standard candles, at least certain types of them do. So if you see one uh, flare off, and it might be bright for just a few uh, days or weeks, but you see one in a distant galaxy, you know what its intrinsic brightness is, and therefore you can tell how far away the galaxy is. That's one of the main ways we use to to work out, for example, that the universe is expanding faster now than it than it ever has uh, than, than it was um, uh, when it was half its present age. <clears throat> so um, yeah, the the catalogue of different objects within the universe, these distant neutron stars that collide and cause gravitational waves, they're in. Uh, extra galactic uh, space. Um, uh, <clears throat> the 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 um, I guess the majority of uh, the interest of cosmologists, scientists who are looking at the early history of the universe, uh, the majority of them are now studying very very distant galaxies. In other words, galaxies that we see in a very youthful stage in their existence. Uh, so the extragalactic universe, the universe beyond our own galaxy, is very, very well studied indeed, Mark. And it's um, only things like 
uh, exoplanets, the solar systems of other stars, the gas clouds in our own galaxy, the, the, the supernova at the, sorry, the uh, black hole at the middle of our galaxy. Those are the kinds of things that are within our own galaxy and within distances measured in thousands of light years rather than billions of light years. Mm, okay, so as I always attempt to do after Fred's t spent 10 minutes explaining the answer <laughs> to someone's question, as far as the naked eye is concerned, probably 99.9% .9 of what we see is in our own galaxy. When you bring in the technology, it changes the game completely. I won't even attempt a percentage, but it would be um, significant. As far as exoplanets concerned, it's um, many thousands that we've found and only one or two that are not in our galaxy. But when you're talking quasars, well, they don't exist anymore. So none. <laughs> <laughs> but we can still see them because of light and distance. Yep. Yep. Uh, does that size it all up? It does. That's a perfect wrap-up. And in fact, why didn't you start with that? And then I wouldn't have had to go through all the other stuff. I made the offer. I did, <laughs> make, I did make the offer. No, your offer was no. Uh, that's, yeah, pretty well. Not, no. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, do you want to hazard a guess at uh, everything we can see with all the technology available versus what you can see with the naked eye, which is almost only our yeah, own galaxy? It's a, it's a, What's the percentage? It's a great question, actually. Um, uh yeah, I, I mean, I suppose... It's, it's uh, too hard. It, 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 it's, it is and it isn't, because um, the sky itself, you know, we haven't really touched on this, but when we astronomers look at the sky, if you want to look at the sky beyond our own galaxy, you look away from the Milky Way itself. And the Milky Way is that band of light that runs all the way around the sky. And it sort of marks the, the disk of our own galaxy. We sit in this disk... So um, because you're in a disk of stars, when you look around, you're going to see this, this uh, strip of stars all around the sky. So if we want to study our own galaxy, that's where we look at the millions of stars in the Milky Way. If we want to study the extragalactic universe, we look away from the Milky Way. Um, we look at what are called the galactic poles. It's the region where you're looking more or less at right angles to the to the plane of the Milky Way. And yeah, the, the so the number of objects that we study, I bet they're about equally distributed between the two. You know, the the extragalactic stuff and the galactic stuff. So roughly 50 50. I was going that? to say that. Yeah, I was, of course. You know, it's, it's a good, solid, arguable guess. Yeah, it's, it's more or less what I'm doing as well, Andrew, but you get the idea. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Mark, I hope we answered your question, and thanks for sending it in. We appreciate it. And keep them coming. We've got a few more to try and um, sort out, but we'll hopefully get to them in the not-too-distant future, depending on light and distance. Uh, Fred, thank you as always. Great pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk, and we'll speak again very soon. We will indeed. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And don't forget to tell your friends about us, especially your geeky friends. They, they seem to like us most. <laughs> and we will talk to you again next week on another edition of Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audio Boom, and Stitcher, or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.